This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to South Devon and to the English Riviera, specifically Torbay. 22 miles of glorious coastline and beaches and among many other delights, a national nature reserve and a UNESCO-designated geopark. We are the guests of the Paynton Palace Theatre, which has flourished here for 120 years and puts on a wide variety of entertainments for 50 weeks of the year. It's run now by Jazz Hands, which is a community interest company, and you get a very warm and welcoming Uh, reception when you come here. On our panel, Andrew Mitchell, former army officer, served as a minister under John Major and later in the coalition government as international development secretary. He's now one of his party's senior backbenchers. Thangam Debonair was a shadow minister until she joined the mass walkout from Jeremy Corbyn's team very nearly three years ago. She's since returned and is now one of the party's whips and she loves to be reminded that this didn't stop her rebelling against herself over the party's decision to vote in favour of triggering Article 50. Uh, Asaka is an academic and she's a poet and also a senior editor at Navara Media, a radical collective which sells itself as a, I quote, new media for a different politics. Even when he is at his most entertainingly lacerating, Matthew Paris is all but universally acclaimed, both as a columnist, mainly at the Times and Spectator, and as a commentator virtually everywhere else. He's also the host of the Radio 4 programme, Great Lives, and he's the fourth member of our panel. Our first question, please. Nigel Pascoe. Are 120,000 members of the Tory party about to impose their own version of Donald Trump on the rest of the UK? (laughs) 120,000, maybe 160,000, no one is absolutely certain, of course, how many will vote. Ash Sarkar. I mean, watching this parade of Tory politicians try to out-reactionary one another feels a bit like being trapped in an extended screening of Alien versus Predator. (laughs) And I imagine that the UK's own Donald Trump uh, that you're referring to is Boris Johnson. And I think failing a spectacular crash and burn, which I've learned the hard way never to rule out, he is likely to become our next Prime Minister. And I think it's worth thinking quite seriously about how that has come to be. Um, I read a column recently that said that Boris Johnson has a unique advantage over the other candidates in that there are two of him. (laughs) And and I, and I, I think that's true. He has, in his time in public office, shown himself to be capable of such stupendous acts of duplicity that I sometimes have to look around and check that I'm still living in the same reality that I thought I was. I happen to be from London, and I've heard his record as London Mayor praised to the high heavens, but I never feel, feel that we're talking about the same London. My memory of Boris Johnson is the socially liberal um, do-gooder who bought a water cannon that was never used. My memory of Boris Johnson is the dedicated public servant who didn't come back from his holiday when Mark Duggan was killed and Tottenham was up in flames. I remember almost a billion pounds of 
public money being used for vanity projects rather than social housing. So I have a polite request uh, for the Boris Johnson fanboys and certain sections of the commentariat. Please keep London out of everybody's mouths while you're trying to justify why this snake oil salesman should be allowed to run the country. Okay. Um, your enthusiasm for that answer may, <laughs> may uh, uh, not betray the fact that this constituency uh, in the referendum voted 63% to leave. Um, I just note that in passing. One of the enthusiasts, one, one of the enthusiastic supporters of Boris Johnson, not least because of his role as London mayor, is Andrew Mitchell. Andrew. Well, I can tell that this is going to be a hard sell, but let me, <laughs> let me, let me try and uh, make it. Um, we live in an unbelievably divided country at the moment. It's not just uh, constituencies and parties, it's also families. Uh, as Jonathan said, this constituency was predominantly leave. Mine was split, split almost exactly down the middle. 50% of people voted to leave and 50% of people voted uh, to remain. Um, but I am clear, as a Democrat, that the results of the referendum mean that we must leave. And I believe that it is right to set a date. All the information is on the table. All the cards are clear. We can say, I think, that we want to leave on October the 31st, preferably with a deal. And I think a deal is more likely if we set that date. And I believe that the right person to lead our country through this incredibly difficult period is someone who actually voted to leave. I think it's incredibly hard for the pathway ahead, the compromises that will need to be made, for someone who voted remain to lead the country now. So I am looking for a lever, and I think the best person to do that is the person who led the campaign which persuaded the country we should leave. And what about, what, about, what about what Nigel Pascoe says and what uh, Ash picked up on at some uh, length, the, the, the charge of him being the sort of the British version of Donald Trump? Well, I think that it's extremely important to look at what he is saying he will do and not try and demonise him in that way. And, and if I can just continue the point I was making, once Brexit, is, once Brexit is through, then we've got to, I hope, revert to the traditional, compassionate, modern Conservative policies that were championed... <laughs> that were championed... That were, championed by, that were championed by David Cameron and George Osborne. One of the, one of the early... One of, hey, 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 one hey, of hey. The, guys, guys, let, let me finish, otherwise it would be of, very irritating for people listening at home. One, one, of, one of the early exponents of that was Boris Johnson. If you look at his record as mayor of London, um, in spite of what Ash says, I think you know, it's very clear he brought... Uh, crime down by 20%. He brought the murder rate down by 50%. He increased employment, particularly under, amongst young people. He uh, supported the growth of business in a way that has never been seen before in London. And he promised to build 100,000 new homes, and he actually built more homes than that. So if you look at his record in London, for many people in this audience, there will be good Boris and bad Boris. But good Boris was a remarkable success as London mayor, and he not only got elected in a Labour city where the Tories were 17% behind, but he then got re-elected after four years, and that must say something about 
his uh, record. So I'm going to support him. I think he is the right man to lead us now out of this mess. It's got to be someone who voted leave, and I think we should get behind him and make sure if he wins this election, which of course is by no means certain, at the same point in 2005 when I was running David Davis's election, we had about the same number of votes and we managed to lose it. So who knows what's going to happen, but, but nevertheless, if he does win, I think we must try and ensure that we bind up our very divided country, get behind him, give him support, and get the best deal we can out of the European Union. Matthew Parrish, you, you write as a former Conservative MP, but a while ago, and you've described uh, Boris Johnson in pretty potent terms, as a, in the old Times column very recently, a nasty piece of work, habitual liar, cheat, and so on. What makes you so antagonistic to him? The funny thing is, I, I'm, I'm not antagonistic, Jonathan. I would go and see, hear a Johnson performance at the drop of a hat. I think he's a marvellous entertainer. He can be very charming. He is enormous fun. Uh, but I do not trust him. I do not trust his word. I would have no confidence in him as Prime Minister of this country. I, I'd like to address the actual question. I am, uh, I am one of those 120,000 people. I've always been a member of the Conservative Party. And I think they're unfairly caricatured in the press. The Conservative members who I know are, yes, a bit old, like me, a bit conservative, like me, but they're public-spirited people and they want the best for the country. They adore, they adore Boris Johnson as an entertainer and they are inclined at the moment to support him. But I believe that when they come to look at his record, they won't ask whether they would like to go to a dinner at which he was speaking. They would ask whether they would like to be in a country where he was Prime Minister. And I have more confidence in the Conservative Party nationally to take the right decision on Boris Johnson than I do in his members of Parliament, who sometimes, for careerist reasons, I'm afraid, and sometimes because the whips are twisting their arms, appear to have completely capitulated. I, there's just one question that I want, um, I want to hear Boris ask, and so now that we know that he's uh, going to be in that television debate, maybe a journalist will ask it. How many children does he have? <laughs> uh, es estimates vary between five and seven, and it's a bit funny to have someone who's quite possibly going to be your Prime Minister, and you don't know how many children he has. Let me, let me ask, I mean, that's an interesting point. Do you worry about how many children he has, as opposed to being merely curious? Yes, I do, because people have been betrayed, and people have been let down, and he has actually tried to take out an injunction to stop the press talking about one of them. That's not the makings of a Prime Minister. Andrew Mitchell. Andrew Mitchell, just on that. Matt, Matt, Matthew may be right or wrong about his private life, but we are electing a Prime Minister. We're not electing the Archbishop of Canterbury. And if you had probed with the same degree of rigour into the lives of previous Prime Ministers, you know, the, the Duke of Wellington, Lord Palmerston, uh, David Lloyd George would never have been Prime Minister. So I think we should focus on what he can do for our country as Prime Minister. And as I say, take big account of what he achieved in London, which I think was immense. Sangam Debonair. Um, well, I mean, 
people talk about Boris Johnson's uh, commitment to the Leave cause. I mean, he had to write two notes. Who has to write two notes? One for Leave, one for Remain, and then toss a coin? What did he do? How did he make up his mind? That's not a man of conviction. That's an opportunist who has looked ahead and decided that it's probably going to be a good idea to campaign for Leave because Leave would probably win and then he could probably get elected Prime Minister at some stage. So the comparison with Donald Trump, I think, yes, he's infamous. He's gone in for infamy. Uh, He says what he thinks people want to hear. He's treated human life, in my opinion, very carelessly. And I give you the example of Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe, who's... Thanks to his careless remarks, there is some, uh, certainly some suggestion that his careless remarks have made it even harder for her to be free. That separated yeah. her from her children, from her child, her child from their fa- her father. He's not a stupid man. He will have had civil servants to advise him. So either he deliberately chose and knowingly chose to say something unhelpful, or he did it carelessly, and I don't know which is worse. So yes, careless infamous, saying what people want to hear. Yes, I'd say that the Tory party is in grave danger of imposing their own version of Donald Trump on the rest of the country, and I deeply, deeply deplore it. I have it on pretty good authority that the Foreign Office was pretty close to securing the release of uh, Mrs Zahari's at uh, Radcliffe. Uh, when when Boris's intervention just wrecked the whole thing. Okay, you can make mistakes, but I would like to hear him at least apologise for it. Last quick word to his, in this respect, his champion, Andrew Mitchell. Um, I I just want to come back on something that Matthew said and also something uh, that Thangham said. Um, Matthew said that the... talked about the 120,000 people, 160,000 people who will be in the electorate. And I strongly agree with what uh, Matthew uh, said. And I think it's incredibly important they do all have a vote because I think when the coronation of Theresa May took place in 2016, it might not have taken place if there had been a proper contest and people had been able to have the rigour that I hope we will have this time. So I'm very strongly in favour of there not being a coronation and there must be a proper contest where people can look at the two candidates, decide on their relative merits. You'd, you'd have liked to have seen that to Andrea Leadsom running against Theresa May and see which is the better potential Prime Minister. Uh, well, I, I think uh, I supported Boris in 2016, and I think if he had not uh, uh, blown up on the runway as he did at that time, um, the, the result might have been uh, different. But that's the other point, because Thangham said that uh, he tossed a coin as to whether he was to support. Um, leave or remain. And I have to confess, I don't know if I dare in this audience, that not only did I support him in 2016, but I actually put him on the candidates list in 1992 when I had responsibility as a vice chairman of the party for candidates. And I can tell you this, that Boris has been a Eurosceptic since that time. At that stage, he was a journalist writing about Europe in uh, Brussels. But I can tell you, without qualification, Boris is a genuine Eurosceptic. That is why he led the campaign to leave the European Union. And I think he's now the man to deliver it. As he's now in broadcasting mode, he'd be welcome to respond to what he's heard in any answers after the Saturday broadcast of this programme. The number to ring is 03700 100 444, and the line's open at 12.30, uh, Mr Johnson. The email address, you can do it that way as well, any.answers at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet, hashtag BBCAQ, and you can follow us at BBC Politics. We please will go to our next... 
Malcolm Kingdom, is it right to take away the free TV licence for the over 75s? This uh, is a BBC decision to remove from over 75-year-olds uh, a free TV licence as they currently have, given them by the Labour government in the 2000s, um, unless they are in receipt, an individual in household is in receipt of pension credit. Matthew Paris. I, I think it is right. I, I don't think that uh, working people who may be quite poor should be paying for free television licences for all pensioners, some of whom may be perfectly well off. I am one of them. I do not need the taxpayer to pay for my television licence in, in uh, five years' time. We have got to accept that things have to be paid for, and they should be paid for by those who can afford the most. So we want to look at people's incomes rather than how old they are. And I think it was cowardly of the Conservative government to push this decision onto the BBC. It's a, it's a decision... <laughs> The BBC has to fund itself, and this decision, which is a political decision, should have been taken by the politicians. It, it was George Osborne, as the Chancellor at that time, who, in the negotiation for the renewal of the licence fee, um, made that decision, whether it was imposed, it was done in a deal with the uh, Director-General, apparently, um, and um, it was thought to be as part of a, an attempt to deal with the £12 billion welfare target. Um, uh, Thangham, Debonair. Is it right to take away free TV licences for the over 75s? Absolutely not. Because in this country, I think we believe in rewarding people for a lifetime of hard work and contribution. And this is a small way of saying thank you. And I believe in saying thank you. And I think that most people in this country would agree with me that people who have put into the system, who have worked all their lives, so they too are working people, Matthew, people who have worked all their lives. And I think when people say, well, why not means test? The reason not to means test for this particular benefit is because when you means test something like this people who should be entitled edit themselves out for all sorts of reasons they feel stigma they think they won't qualify they feel like it's a charity or a handout and they don't apply for something they're then entitled to get so we would cut out people who were entitled but also we would cut out people who were just above the level of the means test cut off and that for me would be saying to them we're not going to say thank you to you for your lifetime of service well, it's, it's, it's... And, and I think that, that that's that's missing the point of what this sort of benefit is for is also we know that people who are, um, there are all sorts of people who are lonely and who use the TV as a lifeline. Now, I think that's a whole other problem that we need to be sorting out with human contact. However, however, in the meantime, I don't think we should means test loneliness. I, I... And I, I really, really resent it. But the most important thing for me is this is one of just a few ways that we have in this country of saying thank you to people who've given a lifetime of work and service. I get on to the... I get onto the London Underground and I, I travel free uh, at, at, during working hours and I find myself elbowing aside, as everyone does on the London Underground, elbowing aside young working people who aren't earning anything like as much as I am. And it's very nice of you, Thangham, to say that you'd like to say thank you 
to me, but a, a columnist like me actually earns more than a member of parliament, and uh, I, d I don't need those particular thanks. I, I don't need a free bus pass. I don't need a free heating allowance. I, we, we've got to look Not at... Not everyone has your money, Matthew. Not no, all old no, that, people enjoy your standard of living. Yes, and, and which, which, is, which is exactly the point that I'm making. It's, it's, it's those pensioners... <laughs> who don't have enough money, who should be helped, just as those younger people who don't have enough money who should be helped. Then and those who should do the helping point, are those Matthew. who can afford to do the helping. You have missed my point, which is people who feel, who feel all sorts of ways about means testing, people who feel the stigma and a feeling of shame and embarrassment about having to claim for something, people who would be the harder off would not do it. And that you would be actually missing out the very people you say you'd want it to help. Ash. Um, another part of George Osborne's welfare reforms was to make the welfare system and the benefit system, the credit system, incredibly hard to navigate. So one of the things that has come out since this announcement was from Age Concern saying lots of people who are entitled to pension credits do not claim them because it is so intimidating and so difficult. And that's the thing which is missing from your own analysis, is that lots of old people are not financially well off and they are also not capable of navigating a system that was designed to be hostile in the first place. I, I just throw in... <laughs> throw in here that the estimated cost would have been the order of uh, 745 million, um, which is a fifth at the moment of the BBC's total budget, but because of the demographics, that cost would go up because more people are reaching that age group. And the present position of the BBC is that you would lose or put at risk... BBC Two, Four, the News Channel, Scotland, Radio Five Live, and more. Do you put that into the equation, Ash? I do think that the way that the licence fee works needs a drastic overhaul. I just don't think that this is it. I think people's media consumption habits have changed drastically because of social media, because of the internet, because of tech giants. So I think one thing is that we would need to look at a digital licence fee because I watch a lot of my television through BBC iPlayer, through Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, things of that nature. So I think I should be paying a digital licence fee which should go back into the BBC because like parliamentary democracy, I find it frustrating but I do want it to endure for centuries. And the other thing that I think that we need to look at is taxing tech giants properly because at the moment... Um, Google, Facebook are just sucking up money from online advertising. And the thing is, is and, and the thing is, is that traffic, particularly on Google, is driven because of content which is originally produced by platforms like the BBC. Except the BBC is not getting a cut of that money, and that needs to change. Thank you, Andrew Mitchell. Well, I think the BBC actually should think again. And, and the reason is this. In 2015, the deal that was done by George Osborne was that the BBC would take over the free licences for those over 75, but in return, the taxpayer, through this remarkably privileged financing system of a sort of poll tax, would uh, be granted, the BBC would get an uplift of inflation every year. And that was the quid pro quo. So I'm rather surprised that the BBC have made this announcement because as politicians in the House of Commons, we understood that the free licences for those over 75 um, were guaranteed because of the inflation agreement. So I very much hope the BBC will think again. And I don't... Um, entirely agree with, with Matthew, because Matthew will remember in the House of Commons all these same arguments about child benefit, where the universality of the system was regarded as incredibly important. 
And the point that's been made about people claiming pension credit is right. So, so I hope very much that this will remain a universal benefit and that the BBC will think again about this. Well, you, you, if, I mean, the BBC is not here to respond, but if it were to say, look, this, this would mean... and the proportion of the licence fee that is taken in order to pay for this is rising disproportionately so that by 2021 or so it will be up to 1,000 million. It'll be up to 25% of the budget of the BBC. Um, uh, and that does put a lot of the output that people, not least those on, 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 on pension credit, enjoy. There is, a, there is a tension there, surely you would recognise. Well, there is, but this was a, an agreement freely entered into. The BBC agreed in, the BBC agreed in, return, in return for being given a, a settlement every year that would go up by the level of, of inflation. They would maintain the support for the... Are, are you, sorry, I, 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 you, you're probably clear about this, that they agreed to maintain it or that they were told they had to make a decision about what to do with it by 2020? Well, my understanding is very clear that the quid pro quo on this was that they would maintain it so long as they got a, an inflationary an inflation index settlement every year. So at the very least, I assume that or I assumed that it would go on until the licence fee was renegotiated with the government in the future. So our questioner, Malcolm, Malcolm Kingdon. Um, the thing, way I feel about it is um, what one of the panels said up there about Facebook, Netflix, Sky, all these sorts of people seem to charge an awful lot to watch their channels and the BBC are not on an equal playing field. As the, as, the, as the sole defender of this decision, do you want a quick last word? Yeah, I, I just don't understand uh, what appears to be Ashes and, and perhaps Andrews and Fangham's argument that benefits uh, should be given to people without them having to prove the need for benefits. We, we can't possibly give benefits to everybody because it would be humiliating for them to apply. People have to apply and they have to show their need and that should go for old people as well as young people. Little doubt, I suspect, that Anita Annan will be deluged with calls on this um, 03700 100 444 after the Saturday broadcast of this programme for any answers. Uh, our next, please. Robert Newman. Today, Virgin Trains are introducing chat carriages where complete strangers can be encouraged to talk to each other. Is that your idea of heaven or hell? <laughs> Chat carriages, it's part of a BBC project, or part of it is crossing divides. Um, what do you think of chat carriages uh, as an idea? Um, Sangam, you were talking about loneliness touched on it earlier. I was, and I, and, I, and I meant what I said in that I think that loneliness cannot and should not only be solved by giving people free TV licences. I think that talking to people is really... It, it's, it's the most important way in which we combat loneliness is by talking and listening to people and finding more ways for us to connect with each other. I personally am a great user of the quiet carriage. And so it would be a challenge for me, but I wouldn't call it hell. And I think that talking to people on public transport used to be a thing that people did. And I think as we've removed some of the opportunities of the post office, the shop, the local bank, all of which are disappearing from our communities for all sorts of reasons, and most of them, in my view, bad reasons, that reduces the number of opportunities for people to have a chat with a complete stranger, which I think is part of the glue of humanity. It's part of who we are. It ought to be not necessary to say, this carriage is the carriage to chat in. I'd like to encourage people just to think about talking to people anyway. We all... <laughs> 
on its own, it's not going to cure loneliness. I think we need to look a lot wider. But I, th I actually am in favour of it. I think it's a great idea, and I'm really interested to see how it turns out. The, the, the principle behind it is, as you sort of half outlined, as I quote from it, to combat two of the most toxic issues of the age, polarisation and isolation. Um, Andrew Mitchell. Well, I, I applaud them for doing an experiment on this Virgin Trains, and it'll be interesting to see what the public say, but it sounds to me like a, a pretty hellish experience. You get, on, you get onto your train to read your book or to uh, have a snooze or whatever, and someone comes up and starts engaging you in conversation, and you then feel rather diffident about asking them whether they would leave you alone. So perhaps, perhaps those people, Jonathan, who are going to be taking part in this can wear a little badge so that those of us who don't want to take part in this can avoid them. Well, actually, on, on, Arriva on Arriva buses, I think, um, they, they, they're, they're, having, they're going to provide conversation starter cards. No. Which could... I, no. I, 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 I absolutely am dead serious, and no. presumably Arriva is as well. Um, Ash Sarkar. I think my favourite thing about this uh, chat carriages idea is hearing Londoners complain about it. <laughs> I mean... Every time I leave London, um, maybe to see some family or something, and someone just stops me to chat on the street, say hello, I just think, am I about to be stabbed here? Am I about to be jumped? What's happening? Um, but it's, it's invariably really lovely. Um, I think this idea of having conversation starter cards sounds awful, because everyone knows in big cities there are two occasions in which you can legitimately talk to someone on the bus or on the tube. Um, occasion one is when someone else is kicking off, and then you make a bit of sly eye contact with someone else and be like, oh, they're making a bit of noise, aren't they? And then that can tip over into a more sustained conversation about the weather or Brexit or whatever. And then the second occasion is, in particular, if you're a young person of colour and you see, say, a Bangladeshi auntie and she just really wants to complain about her daughter-in-law, if you make more than, like, a quarter of a second of eye contact, that conversation <laughs> is going to happen. Matthew. I think that, Bangaman, that, 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 that Ash and I are going to see eye to eye uh, on this. Uh, I'm, I'm all in favour of chat carriages as long as we could have no chat carriages, meaning not just quiet carriages but silent carriages. And I, I, I'm afraid it's going to be a bit weird, or people are going to look a bit weird if they head for the chat carriage, and you're going to want to avoid a carriage that people have specially gone to to chat. So uh, I'm afraid the chat carriages will, will, will become uh, infested with, with sleeve tuggers, and the, 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 rest, the rest of the train will sit in silence, which is where I'd rather be. <laughs> because you're a self-selecting audience, I rarely ask the audience for a view on political questions, but this isn't, as it were, a political issue, although... You might have to endure political conversations in the chat carriage, so I don't want to beg the question. Um, the, who favours, with a show of hands, please, who favours the idea of chat carriages? Would you put your hands up? Um, and who does not favour it? Would you put your hands up? <laughs> I have to tell the BBC editors and Virgin and Arriva that in this audience, um, they'd be very grateful if you don't persist with the experiment <laughs> for too long. We'll go, we'll go to our next, please. Susan James, in view of the target for zero carbon emissions in the UK by 2050, do the panel think this is achievable? 
the British government of the big nations is taking the lead in making it a legally uh, binding obligation for Britain to achieve um, uh, zero, uh, zero car- not, zero, not carbon neutral, but net zero carbon emissions by uh, 2050. Former um, International Development Secretary, Andrew Mitchell. Yes, I do think it's achievable. It's going to be uh, quite a tough call, but the idea that we can, by 2050, be uh, carbon neutral, I think, is is, uh, achievable. I think Britain is setting uh, a very good example as one of the G7 who's most likely to be able to do this. Um, I don't think we should uh, see it uh, in a negative sense in any way at all, because I think the whole revolution of getting there will probably ensure that we create something like 2 million jobs specifically as part of that by the year uh, 2030. And it is absolutely vital that we reduce our gas emissions, and, and this will allow us to do it. It's also plausible to do it by 2050, as the Institute for Fiscal Studies and the Climate Committee, which is where the technical experts rest, they say it's possible to do it by 2050, but not before then. And a lot of the pressure on this is to try and do it by 2040 or even by 2030. I don't think that is attainable. It would mean we have to close down quite a number of industries and organisations in Britain. So I think that 2050 is the right target. I hope we can achieve it. We need to achieve it for the next generations because of the great damage that these gases are doing to our planet. And I think as a society, we should bind ourselves together to go down this track and make sure that we do achieve this victory. The, the, the... Finland, incidentally, has set itself a target of 20... Finland, the government, has set itself a target of... New government has set itself a target of 2035. The the Climate Change Committee, which you refer to, um, has said that if others follow, then there is a good chance of... A 50-50 chance, that is, of keeping the temperature rise below 1.5 centigrade. Um, Do you judge, from your experience of the rest of the world that that is likely as opposed to being technically possible? Well, it has to be done by international agreement. The Paris Agreement was uh, a breakthrough, as was the Copenhagen Agreement, which set all this up. But Britain really is a leader in this area. When I had responsibilities at the Department for International Development, we committed over the five-year period from 2010 to 2015 something like £8,000 million of taxpayers' money to climate change mitigation and to really trying to invigorate the international system so that we could make real progress. So Britain is a leader. We're doing it here in Britain, but also we're setting an example in the developing world, which, of course, uh, suffers first and hardest from the effects of climate change. And I think this is one of the areas where Britain can really hold up its head and is showing international leadership in this very important area. Thank you. Um, Thangam Debonair. Um, well, I, I, I obviously, I think yes, because we have to, but also I want us not to see it as a sacrifice, but as a series of opportunities. I'm incredibly proud that it was a Labour government who, in the 25 government, 2009, I think it was, introduced the world's first climate change act with the world's first legally binding carbon emissions reductions targets. But I'm also really proud that politicians... <laughs> that, that, And the politicians of all parties want to come together and follow the lead set by the young generation. Young people are telling me actually that they want it sooner and I think they need to be involved in trying to get to the 2050 target because they want to see it in 2025. 
I think that we need to be aware of the fact of, that our carbon emissions affect the rest of the world, that we have contributed to uh, climate degradation and to the re reduction in biodiversity across the world, and we need to take responsibility for that. But that's where the opportunity comes in. We could be, in this country, at the forefront of the industries of the future. We could be enjoying nature more, with all its attendant benefits for, for uh, mental health and for, for reductions in loneliness and increase in health. We could be helping each other to breathe clean air, which will save many, many thousands of lives each year. And, and as, a, as a person um, whose family of origin is from the east coast of India, I talk about the responsibility because I've seen firsthand the impact of climate change degradation. And what that means is a class divide even in India. So my uh, better off relatives are able, when there are floods, which there are now every year because of the degradation of the climate, the heating up of the world, and because of the way that the climate, the coast and the monsoon rains have been affected, when my better off relatives are affected, they can build their houses higher and higher. When my less well-off relatives are affected, they can't. And they are at greater risk of all sorts of waterborne diseases as a result of the floods that come about because the monsoon isn't working properly. Now, that is all connected to what we've done to the environment. We're part of that. We have to see solving that, not only as our duty, which it is, but as a great opportunity. Thank you. <laughs> You, you touch on India, you, you will know that India, along with China, uh, Russia, uh, other countries, Australia, Canada, um, are very, maybe uh, wanting to do something, but actually because their starting base is so much lower, are dependent still massively on fossil fuels of one kind or another. How do you think that, uh, but and the, and the mass, the volume, is still going up of emissions. How do you think that a government like India is going to respond, if at all, to the fact that the United Kingdom, and perhaps followed by the EU, we know not, um, is setting this kind of level of target? Well, I think don't underestimate the government of India. I mean, India has leapfrogged over us in terms of technological and digital development. And there are now mega cities in India, such as Chennai, which is where my family's from, which are benefiting hugely from seeing an opportunity, an economic opportunity, and investing in people to train them for the digital and tech jobs of the future. I would expect them, actually, and I think they are doing, to be looking in the same way in the renewable energy business. And I would love us to be at the forefront of those industries because I think there's a massive future there where we can cooperate with countries like India, help them to learn what we're learning, but also learn from them. And I think that's really important. We need a greater sense of partnership across the entire world, because there is only one world, and we're not going to achieve this if we don't work in partnership with mutual respect. Matthew Paris. Well, of course it could be achieved by 2050, and, and perhaps before, and of course... We ought to do it. But that there's a little bit of a danger of getting slightly sanctimonious about this. Every time a steel industry, a steel plant, for instance, closes down in Britain and we import the steel from India or from China instead, our carbon emissions lower and the carbon emissions of those countries go up. So it isn't enough because we are a country whose heavy industry is set to decline even further and has declined a long way. It, it, it isn't enough for us to sit back and think, well, our carbon emissions are uh, decreasing. We need to think about what we do about filling the gap by importing stuff from countries 
whose carbon emissions will thereby increase. Otherwise, in the words of the, the New Testament, it needs must be that offences come, but woe unto those men through whom they come. We, we will be uh, the ones who, through whom the offences didn't come, but the offences will still come from abroad, and that's what we need to think about. Elaborate, elaborate that thought. What kinds of products do you have in the back of your mind that we should think about not importing in order to, to combat the problem? Anything that needs a lot of electricity or a lot of gas, um, and therefore probably a, lo a lot of coal. All those things. Steel is, is one example. Our, um, our automotive industry is unfortunately now declining, but uh, all those industries use an awful lot of energy, quite a bit of which still uh, comes from, uh, from industries that, that put carbon into the atmosphere. And if we simply replace those products with products we've imported from abroad, then we haven't achieved anything for mankind. Asaka. So um, I think I'm about to agree with Matthew Paris, which means that I'm going to be struck with, by lightning any moment now. <laughs> Um, I, I agree with you because we all get a bit self-congratulatory when we talk about Britain having led the way in reducing our carbon emissions. What's actually happened is that we buy so much from China, in particular electronics, it means that we've negatively offset our carbon reduction. So what we've essentially done is outsourced our carbon emissions. I think that uh, achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2015 is actually too little, too late. If you want to seriously think about stopping climate change at 1.5 degrees or less, it means we're going to have to look at net carbon by 2030. And that will mean a huge amount of state-led investment. That would mean no new carbon infrastructure, which means no new fossil fuel power stations, no new runways, um, the city of London, in particular, uh, offenders like Barclays will have to stop funding fossil fuel extraction elsewhere. But together, the public, the green movement can demand it and win. We've won when it comes to getting banks to divest from, for instance, apartheid South Africa. If we organize, we can win again. And just so I don't end on a bum note, I want to talk about how uh, my mind was changed about environmental activism, because before I thought it was a bunch of hippies who wove clothes out of their own back hair. Um, <laughs> and as you can tell, I'm very camp, so I wasn't into it. I realised that environmental activism, looking after the planet, making sure that there is a shared future for humanity on this blue and green little rock, it's not actually about having less of what you want. It's about having more. It's about having more clean air. It's having more better insulated housing. It's about having more cheap or indeed even free public transport. It's about having more of the things that we need to lead happy, sustainable lives. And that's something that we should all look forward to. And when... <laughs> There's an aspiration that... Chancellor has said, he's been much criticised by, by some, the Chancellor said, I think I'm right with the figure, something that's going to cost 
3 trillion to deliver by 2050, uh, Andrew. Is that, do you take his figures with a pinch of salt on this? Well, I, I do a bit because I think if, you, if you're going to have 2 million more jobs created in going down this route, you're going to have another industrial revolution, effectively. That's what we're looking at. And there will be huge opportunities for our economy as a result of that. So I think it's very hard indeed to come up with these fantastical figures in any meaningful way. Thank you. I'm going to put, just put in one tweet here. Um, I'm tweeted to say that it's quite wrong to portray China and India as lagging behind the UK on renewable energy and climate change. China is the biggest investor in the world on these now, and India is rising fast. The UK is missing the boat, and our ignorance about others doesn't help. Um, it is... It is certainly the case that China is a huge investor and also India. Nonetheless, it is the fact that at the moment still their fossil fuel emissions are on a, on a very considerable scale. But, but, but in this country, Jonathan, I mean, we, we have a massive untapped potential in tidal and wave, and that's going to need government investment to take it from developmental to commercially viable. There's so much more we could be doing. And I think it's worth making this point, Jonathan, too, that, that China has made a fantastic progress in all of this and that probably Britain, the British government, has more in common with China on climate change policy than it does currently with Trump America. And we haven't got time to do Huawei, but we'll go to our next question, therefore, which we can just squeeze in. Christine Durrant. Torbay has a time bank. This allows people to swap skills for credits which they can spend in the time bank. What skills would the panel offer on their time bank? What skills would you, members of the panel, offer on your time bank in exchange for a credit? Where shall we start uh, with this? I think we might start with Thangham. Um, well, uh, oh gosh, um, I don't know if anyone would want to pay for it, but I do have my own sourdough starter, and once a week I do make a loaf of sourdough bread. I can also knit fingerless mittens, which is, it started to help my leafleters to go out leafleting um, for me in the winter and not complain of cold. And I can also play the cello, which, if you know my lovely, wonderful constituency of Bristol West, makes me in my perfect for it. <laughs> Matthew Paris. Well, I don't know how many credits I would get for this, but I have a rather unusual skill. Uh, by scratching my head in just one place, I can cause myself to sneeze. It takes a little while, but it's, it's kind of automatic. Um, uh, will, you, will you try and do it for us? And I'll go to the other two and maybe a sneeze yes, before yes, the end. Yes, Are talk among yourselves and we'll I'll, have a, I'll have a little okay. scratch. Um, um, uh, what would you offer if a sudden sneeze comes? It is uh, likely to be Matthews. And uh, Andrew? Um, I, I, think, I think two things, Jonathan. First of all, being a, a politician, particularly now, I'd want to sort of advocate the advantage of having a very thick skin. Um, and the other thing is that in, in my wonderful constituency of the royal town of... <laughs> 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 Any question does have its moments, but I can't remember one like that. <laughs> Ash. Um, there are two very closely guarded secrets in my family. The first is the real identity of my cousin's father. <laughs> and the second is the family lamb curry recipe. 
So in return for vast amounts of credits at this time bank, I could be persuaded to share that recipe with you. <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Everyone now wants to sneeze, but we've got to get off air. Um, next week, we're going to be, where are we going to be? We're going to be in Norfolk with, amongst others, David Davis, uh, Dawn Butler for Labour, and the journalist Simon Jenkins. Join us there, but from the Paynton Palace Theatre in Devon, goodbye. Did you enjoy the podcast? Discover more music, radio, and podcasts on BBC Sound.